Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for believers, the doubters and everybody in between. We've had some gremlins, some real gremlins, James, some actual gremlins. Really? really yeah, it was... Uh, I kept thinking... So we, re- we were recording this... We did record this episode yesterday and then when I went to edit it, it got it's funny because we always start the recording a little bit early and uh you know we're chatting away and then go right let's go for it and literally it recorded up until the point we went let's go for it and then it was just kind of white noise after that which was very strange and talking of white noise i did wonder if our uh the uh the white witch who put that uh, nice spell on us last week, whether that just run out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the um, the fridge fresh date for a spell is, but yeah. Um, yeah, very, very peculiar. So this will either be expertly delivered because we've rehearsed it, yeah. or we'll be as tongue-tied over the pronunciations as, as, as we before. were the first yeah. time. But yes, we'll, uh, we're going to try and approach it from a fresh angle, but we'll see how we go. Um well, the episode really came about because I was thinking about something we regularly mention on this podcast, the sometimes uh, strained relationship, let's say, between science and the paranormal. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, this kind of tension, I guess, there is between the scientific uh, look at the paranormal and the kind of believers in the paranormal and that can cause defensiveness, dismissiveness, and I guess at times a blinkered approach from both sides of the debate. Yeah, it's difficult to... Um, I suppose it's difficult for a scientist to come... You know, if you're doing very theoretical or very empirical research to just drop in there, uh, I'm a big fan of ghosts. Um, I suppose I don't know why, but it just doesn't sit right, does it? No, it doesn't seem to fit. And I think it's summed up well by psychologist and parapsychologist, a guy called Harry Irvin, in a paper he wrote for the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. So he wrote this paper in 1993. And he's basically saying that scientists are likely to scoff at people who believe in anything paranormal. And I love this phrase. (laughs) And think of them all as whack jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely going to use whack job this week. I've not heard that term for a while. It's a great term. It is. He he goes on to say, this type of gratuitous assumption is most common among sceptic commentators who act as a belief in ESP, God, and a belief in the unluckiness of the number 13 are all tarred with the same brush yeah i guess i guess that's the point that we've covered on the podcast because we cover a range of topics on this podcast and yeah you know ufo topics are different to cryptids and people have different beliefs and different uh opinions on them but i, I guess he's saying sometimes scientists just lump it all together and go well it's just crazy we're all whack jobs <laughs> we're all whack jobs <laughs> yeah but but i think probably people in the ufo community think ghost hunters are whack jobs and yeah but bigfoot hunters think that uh ufo hunters perhaps are whack jobs i suppose you get uh factions within the greater community yeah exactly and i think this is what Irvin goes on to talk about. He says there are at least seven different types of paranormal belief, 
including traditional religious beliefs, parapsychological belief, witchcraft, spiritualism, superstition, extraordinary life forms. Uh, I guess that includes uh, UFO encounter or alien encounters and cryptids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and precognition. And yeah, he's making the point that these do often get lumped together by sceptics. But as you're saying, they, in some ways, you can have factions within the factions of people who believe in that. You know, there's there's hot debate in the uh, UFO community. I, actually, I see it in some of the forums. Some people post kind of ghost encounters and some of the people in the forum groups will go, oh my God, that's amazing. I've had a similar experience. And then others will go, well, that's just complete rubbish. You know what I mean? So even yeah. within those paranormal groups there's dissent yeah that's true and we've spoken about how the, you get like maybe timothy good on one side of the fence who really as i would say nuts and bolts ufologist mm. and then you've got stephen greer on the other side who is more on the ethereal side of things he, he looks at them not necessarily as ships with beings from another world but more like sort of i guess spiritual beings angelic beings almost and um i'm not sure where where their two worldviews join up really apart from there is something in the sky you know yeah yeah i i i i was thinking this is similar i mean if you look at kind of flat earthers um who yeah i guess i would fall in the much more skeptic side of the flat earthers but it's interesting to me that when the flat earth phenomenon started it was almost a i always saw it as a bit of a conspiracy theory and people were talking about how planes moved and there seemed to be waves of people in authority who seemed to know that the earth was flat and keeping it against us uh keeping us from having that information but as that, I guess you'd call it a movement, has gone on, it seems to have gone to a more kind of semi-religious aspects of uh, mm. creationist theory and, and stuff like that. So I guess even within these topics themselves, they can develop over time and different opinions can fall. Yeah, yeah. Back in the 80s, the uh, Flat Earth movement was a bit like... Um the monster raving loony party it was it was just a fun thing to be part of it didn't necessarily mean what we think it you know what it does now yeah yeah so i guess all this is basically saying that people can fall into a trap of assumptions or stereotyping people's beliefs which made me think do we or does one do the same with scientists and their attitude towards the paranormal do we leap to an assumption that no scientist could or would believe in the paranormal. Well, there is data out there that shows that more scientists believe in the possibility of the paranormal phenomena than one might think. In a study conducted in 1982 of 339 leading scientists, 29% of the world's top scientist, scientists believed that extrasensory perception is, I quote, an established fact or a likely possibility. Hmm. That was higher than I was expecting. It is higher than I was expecting. I suppose it depends on where the cutoff point is, if they include sort of supernatural beliefs derived from mainstream religion, mm. or whether it is, um, you know, are they just believing ghosts? Because... You know, if if they surveyed a lot of Catholics there, yeah. they probably would say, yes, they believed in angels, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, among American scientists, actually, if you divide them into one group within that subset, the figure was actually higher. So from uh, the whole of the survey, it was 29% of scientists had a belief or a likely possibility in uh, extrasensory perception. Among American scientists, it was up 40%, which is really high. Goodness. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. But, I, I, and I, I'm not going to compare necessarily apples with apples here, but I, I still thought that scientists in, might be out of step with mainstream beliefs. I think this was highlighted in a piece by a guy called Dean Radding in the Journal of Science and Healing. Uh, he said that studies show that 75% of Americans believe in the paranormal. So I know the other study was about extrasensory perception, but uh, if you take 75% as the Americans as a general population, compared to the scientific community, it's only 40%. So there is still a little bit of a divide there. Okay, okay. And Dean Radding points out that though there is a decent amount of research on what he refers to as noetic subjects, a, a phrase I'd not really heard before no no nor i and I, I think in this context it does mean paranormal i know the uh the dictionary definition is the study of consciousness and the mind um but he said that these paranormal subjects are largely ignored by the scientific community mm. so yeah. this so this guy dean radding he's the senior scientist at the institute of noetic scientists um so, yeah, it's a whole institute of noetic scientists, and he's the senior guy, which I love. <laughs> that is good. Um, I'm just going to play a short edited clip of him talking about why he thinks there is this disconnect between what science and spirituality. He's got quite a wide definition of what spirituality is, as, as you'll hear. Um, but, yeah, he's, lo he's really exploring why this disconnect might exist. Have a listen. Uh, I think science and spirituality are beginning to converge. Although I have a bit of a problem with the word spirituality because it, it has so many meanings that it's always difficult to know exactly what somebody thinks they mean by that word. What I mean by spirituality is something of an internal sense that there's something more. There's something like a, a connectivity uh, between me and the rest of the universe in some meaningful way. Not a trivial way, but a meaningful way. So is science moving in that direction? Well, in some ways, science has always recognized that everything is always interconnected. But because of the nature of science, it, as soon as you start studying one thing, you recognize that it's always connected with everything else if by no other thing, reason than just gravity connects everything. But, but it, the, everything is also interdependent. And you can't study everything all at once. So science has been very good at sort of if, uh, slicing up the world into little pieces and then diving deeply down each little piece, and that becomes a discipline. So it takes 20 to 30 years for somebody to become an expert in their discipline, and you learn a huge amount about a very thin piece of the universe. And it's very easy to forget that that piece actually is still connected to everything else. There are probably 10,000 or more scientific journals. And, and even sometimes disciplines that you think would be close together if you, you, you can't read one journal and then look to the other one because the, the language is different. The terms that are used are different. The, the statistical models, it, almost everything becomes different. Different people are involved as well. How can science begin to study something as uh, vaguely defined as spirituality, meaning connectivity, 
and remain science. In the long term, I see that, yes, there's a convergence, but it's more like a, simply a, it's more, less of a convergence between two separate things and more a growing recognition that in order to understand complex systems within science, you have to have a broader and broader perspective. And at some point, that perspective will include what we currently call spirituality. I think that's he's got some really interesting points there. I was I really thought about that fact that when you do specialize in a uh, scientific area or genre, that you do end up spending pretty much most of, if not a huge chunk of your life, looking at this one area, and that might kind of blind you in a certain way to looking at other disciplines within science and then that's compounded by the fact everybody uses different terminology everybody uses different measures different uh, mathematical equations so it's hard to kind of join up the dots in some way because everyone's a specialist yeah i i totally get that and um also i guess you would stay in your furrow to keep repeated funding coming in Whereas, you know, if you're doing nuclear physics and then go, got an idea, I'm looking into werewolves, yeah, yeah. Um, you're not going to get the funding that uh, you previously had and therefore you'll probably lose your tenure. Yeah. So, Yeah, can I, you imagine that conversation <laughs> when you go to the university? I know I'm the leading kind of nuclear physicist. <laughs> I'm thinking about switching to do a bit of werewolfing. <laughs> what do you reckon? <laughs> um, but, but also... That what they tend, what scientists tend to do is is look into either either empirical or theoretical sciences, which you can have a hypothesis for. I mean, the the best hypothesis we've got for ghosts, I suppose, is they're the spirits of the dead. How on earth are you going to test that? Yeah, yeah. How does that work? Yeah. Um, what this whole list initial part that I was researching just started me thinking and looking for stories that have been let's say taken seriously or at least caused some level of head scratching from the scientific and medical community because I think as we've talked about in the past there's most cases you can look at as or maybe it's some you know neurological or psychological disorder or misinterpretation all this kind of stuff mm. But, so I was trying to focus on ones that have had some, uh, let's say, taken seriously by the scientific community, even if they don't necessarily believe in the paranormal aspect of it. And I wanted to begin with the case of someone called Utara Huda. Um, her case was looked at by the British Medical Journal, also the University of Virginia, and was originally investigated by two psychologists in India. I'm going to summarise the piece, not from their source material. Uh, I'm going to summarise it from a paper in the Society for Psychical Research, simply because they were the ones who had the most comprehensive detail of the case that I could find. Okay. Um, and uh, as usual, with a quantum mechanics episode there are going to be some terrible mispronunciations from me over the next <laughs> few minutes. So I do apologise. So this is the story of an Indian woman, woman called Utara Huda, whose personality and memories abruptly changed at the age of 32, where she would transform 
into a rural villager who lived and died over 150 years before Utara was born. Utara would fall into a trance-like state and was temporarily transformed into this woman who had died a century and a half earlier. During her trances, Utara was unable to speak her native Marathi language. However, she was able to speak Bengali fluently in an archaic dialogue. Outside of her trance-like state, she only had a real basic understanding of Bengali, so this was a real transformation for her. Researchers interviewed Utara between 1975 and 1977 when she was in these trance-like states, where she claimed to be a woman called Sharada. Utara gave them a huge amount of detail of her life as this, I guess, reincarnated woman is, is what the story is. This is, is the named. assumption, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So over the course of many interviews, Utara, manifesting as Sharada, told her life story. Her ancestors, ancestors had settled in a place named Kastapur. Her grandfather had moved to Bansburia, one of seven villages that were together named Saptagram. They get more difficult, but I think I, think I managed that. <laughs> You're with, doing all right. I'm doing that. all right, aren't I? I, I I've, Saptagram is, is a very forgiving yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, she was born in Burdwan, Bengal, on Janmashtami Day in the month of Badrapad. We went through this last time. You should have just said it in English. Yeah, I, I, last time we recorded this, I did say to Ben, I should have just used the brackets, which said between August and September. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't learn, did I? No. <laughs> she claimed her father was a priest at a nearby temple, and when she was two months old, her mother died. Her father remarried, but Sharada was raised by her aunt and uncle, who had no children of their own. She was taught to read and write by her father's cousin. When she was seven, her aunt arranged for her to marry her husband's nephew, Vishwanath Muko Padhaya, a physician. He and Sharada lived uh, for two years with his parents, but his father opposed the marriage, leading to quarrels. The younger couple eventually moved out. Her father died when she was 18. The family moved back and forth between Khulnar district, which was then part of Bengal but now is in Bangladesh, and Septagram, as we mentioned earlier. Sharada suffered two miscarriages and then became pregnant a third time. When she was five months pregnant, she travelled by cart from Shivapur, where she was then living, to Septagram, leaving her husband at home. I mean, the level of detail she was giving is amazing, including stuff like this. She said she left her diamond nose ring and 125 rubies in a cupboard for fear of bandits on her travels to and fro. While staying with her aunt in Septagram, she wrote her husband asking him to take her on a pilgrimage to thank the goddess Tara Devi for a safely completed pregnancy. So what's interesting about this, this is complete, as, as this character completely different religious and cultural beliefs than her normal state so that that's really fascinating i think yeah yeah she's got different reference points when she's in this character yeah definitely but the trick is going to be verifying it right yeah yeah absolutely less than two months into the visit she was bitten on the right toe by a snake while picking flowers 
She recalled being carried on a litter or palaquin, which I think is like a cart, and then losing consciousness. So effectively, at this point, the implication is she died of this snake bite. Mm. Sharada Inutura's body did not remember dying or anything else. She didn't remember anything else between losing consciousness and awaking in the body of Utara in Nagpur over 150 years later. When she was questioned about why she thought she'd been reawakened, she said she came walking in search of her husband. So in terms of detail, during these taped encounters, Sharada gave the names of her father, mother, stepmother, her father's cousin who had taught her to write, the husband of the aunt she'd been staying with when she was bitten by the snake, her husband and her husband's father. She also mentioned several place names. Now, researchers tracked down a family in Bengal who matched the descriptions and some of the names that Atura gave. Information from the family and investigation of historical records backed up a lot of the detail that was being given by Utara, including the name of her father and the family story of a female member of the family who was killed by a snake bite. Utura also gave descriptions of temples and buildings in the area that were correct and would be unlikely to be known by anyone outside of that local area. While she was in her trance-like state, Utara's body language and manner would completely change, as well as her language, and she demonstrated a complete ignorance of modern technology, including trains, electricity, she was terrified of light switches because she didn't understand how they worked, gas stoves, telephones, and was also scared of the tape recorder that was being used to document the conversations. She thought there was something demonic and otherworldly about being able to hear these voices Mm. on tape which again fascinating Mm. so now so you look at that on face value and go go, you've got this woman who can now speak a language that she couldn't really speak before she has all this fear of modern technology she comes up with dates places um and events that researchers did manage to at least to some degree verify. So this seems like a good candidate for something that you go, well, this has got to be some paranormal experience, right? It's Yes, it seems to. But, but you can't completely rule out something else, can you? That's the pickle. That is the pickle. So let, let's do that. Let's look at some of the more let's say sceptical view of this story. It has been argued that Utara could have been suffering from disassociated identity disorder. So we've talked about disassociation in relation to the paranormal before on the podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of hallucinations and stuff. Um, So disassociated identity disorder was previously known as multiple personality disorder which i think people will be more familiar with from movies and kind of books and stuff like that so i guess the theory is that utara took on this other personality perhaps as a coping mechanism for some kind of trauma or something that had happened to her but then you kind of go okay so how do the critics deal with the fact she could speak this 
archaic, to use the, the quotes, language that she had only a basic knowledge of Bengali and then she could speak this fluent language. Critics point out that there is a possibility that Utara's grasp of Bengali language was greater than she'd let on. She was incredibly well educated. Uh, she'd been to private school. Um, and, and I guess it was funny because I read that and I thought, well, are they saying she's faking it? But it did remind me, Ben, of when I worked in Japan. There was somebody I worked with. And when I first started work with, working with them, they said they hardly spoke any English. So we would talk through a translator. It was only when I got to know them a bit better, I realised they actually spoke pretty fluent English. But on first meeting, they felt a little bit embarrassed or thought they were going to mess up the words. So almost didn't feel comfortable enough to say that they spoke language. Right, the language. right. So, you know, there, there, there's this theory that in this dissociated state, maybe she knew more about the Bengali language than she let on. I mean, I guess I don't know enough about linguistics to know what archaic Bengali versus a more modern day version of Bengali, how different that is and how would you know that she was speaking in a, an archaic dialogue, dialect, you know what I mean? Yeah, and... You know, I know she had some very specific information, but I mean, it's not outside the realms of possibility that she read it. Yeah, and and certainly those those religious and cultural aspects. You know, she may have studied as part of her education different religions and religious beliefs and incorporated them into this disassociated state or you know alternate personality that she developed. I mean. In terms of the investigation into the family history of Altara's alter ego, critics point out that maybe researchers kind of look for evidence that matched the story. You know, they mm. went, there was, there's lots in the paper about, you know, historical records can be patchy. There's not a lot on female family members because it was really the male family members who were written about in historical records. So, yeah, was there some almost over-enthusiasticness from the investigators who were trying to make a story, almost paradoilia, trying to find the pattern that wasn't there. Um, you know, things like the snake bite story in the family, you know, we kind of think about it in very Western terms, but, you know, snakes are a big part <laughs> of India and Indian yeah. culture. So going back in time and going, oh, yeah, no, we had a family member who was bitten by a snake. I don't know how unusual that is. Do you know what I mean? So does is this like an illustration of why it's so difficult for science to do this? Because the evidence isn't, isn't clear and it isn't Boolean. And presumably the result of this was, nah, it could be either. It's a compelling case, but it could be either. Yeah, yeah. I, I would put this in the scientific head-scratcher character category <clears throat> although i think you know publications like the british medical journal came down on the side of it was some disorder rather than paranormal event i think that's the way it leans it's not explicit but that's the way it leans i think yeah yeah and i think there's so many of those past life regression cases where there is even more compelling evidence than um, perhaps was even in that case, like the the Indian boy who remembered his his previous wife and family, 
with right. with incredible detail. Yeah, we covered that on the podcast, didn't we? A few, yeah. a few episodes back. Yes, and that that seems to be compelling. But again, it's down to what you're studying is some whether that person could have got the facts from anywhere else and you know there's no laboratory conditions or anything here you just have to if it's going on faith and trust i mean you know faith that that person is saying what they say they are and not lying it's not very it's not very scientific is it no which is a nice segue into our next case it's almost like you've heard this before ben <laughs> <laughs> i have got this incredible deja vu i know it's amazing it did lead me to try and find something that was less uh, less up for debate and more interesting in terms of coming down on one side or other of the debate. And I came across this peer-reviewed paper that, again, was published in the British Medical Journal. And this one's a lot more difficult to discount from a sceptical point of view. And it looks at the case of a 26-year-old man who continued to see and talk to his mother after her death. The paper from 2011 is titled, I love this, Insightful Hallucination, Psychopathology or Paranormal Phenomenon? It sounds like the line-up in a brilliant prog rock night. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's a 20-minute song, isn't it? <laughs> The paper was written by Amin A. Mohammed Gadit, who at the time worked in the Department of Psychiatry at Memorial University in Newfoundland in Canada. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. He's got props. Um, now, the summary of the report states, This report describes a 26-year-old man who was so emotionally attached to his mother that the mere thought of separating from her caused immense anxiety. The death of his mother after a brief illness resulted in prolonged bereavement. However, the patient started seeing and talking to his mother after her death, which led to a huge improvement in his mood and social functioning. His wife brought him in for consultation, but no obvious psychopathology was detected. This gave rise to a dilemma of whether to consider this a real psychopathology and treat it or to disregard these reported hallucinations. No active treatment is being given to this patient at the moment. So that kind of shows where they leaned in that mm. sense. Let's dig, dig a bit deeper into the paper. The patient who's not named is, uh, or was at the time, a 26-year-old successful businessman who was extremely close to his mother. His mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness and was expected to live for a few months. This obviously caused the man strong emotional turmoil. The man claimed that as his mother was dying, she told him she would remain in contact with him after her death. So that's some deathbed moment where mm. she's saying, I will be there for you. And to quote from the paper... The patient went through a complicated bereavement process after she died. However, six months later, he regained his cheerful mood and started taking interest in business again. I don't know if he took interest in anything else, but he definitely did in business. <laughs> his wife noticed that he was talking to himself for at least an hour each day. When asked, he said that his mother visits him every day and he talks to her. This was his firm belief. 
There was no deterioration in his personality and no other features worthy of note. His wife persuaded him to visit a psychiatric clinic for assessment despite his resentment. He said that this contact with his mother made him happy and kept his life normal. Apart from this history of meetings with his dead mother, there was no other information of relevance. There was no significant medical history or family history indicating any mental disorders. A thorough clinical history revealed nothing except this hallucination. The patient had retained insight as he believed that this would not happen normally, but in, the case, in this case it was a special occurrence brought about by his religious belief. I think that's interesting as well. I think the point they're making there is um, because he was aware this was unusual and, you know, that it, it wasn't a delusional state because he knew there was something weird about it, but he was yeah. just going with it, basically. I'd love to know what they talked about. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Um his physical examination was unremarkable and all laboratory results were normal. MRI did not reveal any pathology. He was also tested for mental disorders, but none were found. He was also referred for a second opinion, and once again, nothing that would explain this phenomena was identified. The report talks about the fact schizophrenia was ruled out, as well as organic pathology, which I, I'm not an expert, but I imagine that's some kind of neurological problem rather than mental problem maybe mm -hmm. physical examination was unremarkable laboratory blood investigations did not reveal any abnormalities MRI and EEG were normal now there is an amazing section in this report and I'm just going to read two bits of it they've got these capital head headings first one is treatment in capital letters it just says no treatment was offered hmm under the section, Outcome and Follow-up, it says, A monthly report for the first three months was advised initially in order to assess the ongoing clinical condition. After seven months, the situation remained unchanged and the patient was given monthly follow-up appointments. Now, this bit is the bit that blew my mind. So the author, in his conclusion, says, the vi This vision cannot be defined as pseudo-hallucination, or as a true hallucination, and hence, in the author's opinion, might be a paranormal experience. <laughs> wow. So that's um, that's a proper scientist coming to a paranormal conclusion. Yeah, I, I, I guess as much as you will come to that conclusion in a peer-reviewed scientific paper, you know, I hence, you know, he's used the words in the author's opinion carefully and the word might be a paranormal mm, experience mm, mm. but when you read the whole paper it's basically leading to that point that there is no previous history of anything abnormal physically or mentally he's been tested for all these mental disorders and physical disorders nothing he's aware that him talking to his mother or her visiting him every day for at least an hour is unusual and is not, you know, quote unquote normal. And because of that awareness, it's, you know, that makes it even more intriguing. So, yeah, I guess 
they almost Sherlock Holmes like they're left with the conclusion that well yeah. it might be something paranormal that is that is quite bizarre but also I, I'm desperate to know more about the situation like is he just does he go in the kitchen and she's standing there and she's like what are you having for dinner yeah. he's like lasagna and she's like oh I used to love lasagna yeah and I don't I don't know how that works yeah and I I I guess I guess it can this can fall into two cases of um some kind of paranormal activity. I guess the only skeptic route left is it is some kind of mental delusion that's not been identified so far by the medical or scientific world or or possibly in some ways he knows it's a fantasy but you know, it gives him comfort and he's working, so he's just going with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm. Or alternatively, it could be a tulpa, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. That hadn't occurred to me. That's a great idea. It could be. It could be. Which yeah. would, That would be fascinating in itself because a very personal... Well, I guess that, yeah, what's the difference between an hallucination and a tulpa? That's another debate for another day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the test with a tulpa is because other people can usually see a tulpa. Yeah, I wonder if which other is not the case in this case. But is it, hmm, did he not, I wonder, ever say to his wife, do you not want to meet your mother-in-law again? I don't know. The only bit in the paper that references that is that his wife visualised him talking to himself rather than talking to anyone Oh, there. I see, I see. Yeah. Which, oh, hence she said you've got to get this checked out. Yeah, you got right. you need to get this checked out by a psychiatrist because I see you talking to yourself for an hour a day. You know, it'd be it'd be incredible to film that and see what that looks like. You know what I mean? Does he body language, all that kind of stuff? Does it look like he's interacting with another mm. human being or another entity, or is it just him kind of mumbling to himself? That'd be incredible to find yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bit Norman Batesy. A little bit Norman Batesy, um, but it, it was working for him, uh, and he hasn't killed anyone yet. So <laughs> that's a subsequent paper that we know about. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, from a medical professional acknowledging in a peer-reviewed paper that a patient may have been having a paranormal encounter, to a more personal story from a member of the medical community, again written in the British Medical Journal. Um. Now, this is a published article with the name of the author attached, but I've decided to omit the name because even though it is a published piece and has been featured in other articles and news stories, I felt it it, it deals with the death of the author's son and it comes from a deeply personal place and I... uh, his intention in writing it was to have it published in the British Medical Journal as a way of explaining to other medical professionals how complex bereavement is and not to discount people's beliefs. So in some ways, I think using his name in the context of our podcast feels a little outside probably what he intended originally, so I yeah, left yeah, his name yeah. out. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's perfectly good, yes. So the article was written in 1992 by a medical consultant and it does deal with the death of the author's son. Um, 
I wanted to include it because I thought it was deeply moving. It certainly moved me when I read it. And incredibly brave for someone to talk about a potential paranormal encounter in basically their professional journal. Yeah. <laughs> a scientific medical journal. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so I'm going to read pretty much the whole piece. Um and uh, then we'll have a talk about it. And like I said, it does deal with some emotional subjects, so bear that in mind. So the author says, Two years ago, my son, 12 years old, was killed in a car accident, and my wife and 10-year-old daughter suffered multiple fractures. The first year was a nightmare, and the second year has been a bad dream. Perhaps my therapeutic catharsis may help other doctors who deal with disasters on a daily basis. I have always found the paranormal fascinating, but have never experienced anything remotely paranormal. On the night of the accident, I arrived home and found no one there. I immediately knew that something terrible had happened. I rushed from room to room looking for evidence of a burglary or even a struggle. I recall the cold sweat and palpitations and bowel writhing of sheer panic. I fought to think coolly. It was Tuesday, my son's scout evening. My wife must have broken down with the children and the dog. I ran to my car and drove fast. At the large roundabout half a mile away, the road was blocked by a barrier and a policeman. He said, there's a big accident up there, sir. I replied... I think my family are involved. He said, that's statistically most unlikely, sir. I drove furiously to the hospital. I asked in the accident and emergency department whether anyone by my family name had been admitted. The receptionist's features changed and my worst fears were confirmed. My wife was sitting on a trolley, pale, with an oxygen mask, with fractured ribs, clavicle and pelvis, and totally disoriented. Where are the children? I asked. They're in the car, she answered. My panic worsened. I began to stride throughout the department, trying to find them until restrained and mildly reprimanded by a senior house officer. The timing of events over the next few hours is a complete blur, but eventually my daughter was brought in on a stretcher, conscious with multiple fractures. Hello, Daddy. I felt immensely relieved, but it was an interminable time before the consultant told me of my son's death. I already knew this must be so, but I had previously calculated that if they'd been driving home after my son had been dropped off at scout headquarters, he would now be waiting outside to be collected. I was leaving the hospital on this desperate mission when a nurse asked me gently to wait a little longer for the consultant. Daily... I walk along the hospital corridor which runs from the accident and emergency department to the pathology block and the mortuary and I can recall every step of that short journey with the hospital chaplain and policeman for the identification procedure. Not going to go into this bit because it, it's just it's very harrowing. After that event, my next thoughts were of the next morning's clinic which I could not face. I telephoned my friend and colleague to ask him to say I would not be there. He was with me in a flash and plied me generously with whiskey and brandy until that night I could sleep. My wife and daughter spent the next two months in hospital and we were all surrounded by many supporters who warded off our insanity. 
excessive visiting with them was a major problem. We often heard the next knock on the door with dread, usually when my wife and I were trying to grab a few minutes of mutual rationalisation or psychotherapy. More paranormal phenomena? Only one. I woke at home two days after the accident and felt Alistair's knees in my back, nestling up warm and solid, as he sometimes did on weekend mornings, even at 12 years old. I turned to cuddle him, but as I turned, the knees disappeared. This was not a dream sequence. Dreams were traumatic. Walking through a wood, I saw my son sitting under a tree. Daddy, I've been looking for you everywhere. The dream unnerved me and still does. Could there be an afterlife and could he be searching for us, worried and confused? He had never had any sense of direction, which was a family standing joke. When we lived in the United States, he had managed to lose himself at the top of John Hancock Tower. In another dream, I was photographing the family, including my son, on holiday. The scene then shifted rapidly to the eager scene when you inspect the photographs. My son was not in the picture. There was only a gap where he had been standing. I must also confront the anger of our loss. Why on earth was he being driven to a non-essential event on a dark, wet, windy night? How can two drivers lack the basic skills to avoid a collision? Another strong emotion jumped out from those early bleak days. Walking down the street, I would see many examples of foul-mouthed, ghastly, worthless yobbos, and I would ask why they were spared and my son was dead. I remember mumbling in the street, there really should be a better selection process for candidates for premature death. Why should my family and I be condemned to a life sentence of despair interspersed by short periods of alcohol bonhomie and long periods of public acting of which Laurence Olivier would have been proud? Have there been any benefits? Our close friends are closer. I was overcome by the groundswell of genuine goodwill from colleagues who I hardly knew. I have no fear of my own death whatsoever. If my son has experienced this... What possible fear and horror can I have for this inevitable event? The role of God? I do not know. Certainly I experienced periods of great tranquillity and certainty that they would eventually recover our sanity, even during our first few weeks. Were these God-given? I strongly recommend the therapeutic benefits of activity to the bereavement. Do not allow yourself to sit or lie and think. About one month after the accident, I bought my wife a new car, although she was still languishing in hospital. And this positive decision against the background of exhausted, devastating inertia made me feel high for 48 hours. We acquired a new dog, as our last one had perished in the accident, and she has been a strengthening focus of our new life. We were also desperately keen to have another child, inspired by the good fortune of my favourite actress, Patricia Hodge, at the age of 45. Then we could argue that some good would have come from bad, but all to no avail so far. And never, never try to save money by buying a thin, elegant sort of car. Bankrupt yourself and buy solid steel. So, yeah, that story really touched me, his braveness and honesty in sharing that experience for the benefit of others. Yeah, and and fully includes the the paranormal element, which, um, I mean, last time we spoke about this, you made the very good point that 
it felt like that bit had been toned down a little. I felt I, I wondered. I wondered because it had been published in the medical journal whether some editor editor had yeah played down the paranormal aspect of it i don't know that for sure but i i mm. did wonder i i think what struck me was i guess from a skeptical point of view the you know seeing having uh, an apparition of his son and the feeling his son's knees in his back and the dream sequences he talks about I think a skeptic would probably say that some kind of psychological response to grief and might be easier to explain away the bit that struck me was his reaction to coming home and finding his family weren't there I mean I've done that I've come home and you know nobody here my first thought is not, oh my god, there's been an incredible disaster, and go into a panic. You know, no, it's you, go to the pub, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of well. <laughs> hey, it's quiet. Um, but yeah, I mean, even if you've got some concern, it, it it's kind of tempered by your logic. Whereas it feels like for him, he almost knew immediately that something was up and something serious was up. He he just what he describes was going into a a panic, and I think. Even if you can explain away his encounters with his son post-death as grief and psychological, I think it's harder with his reaction to coming home and finding them not there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I suppose it'd be interesting, um, but not practical, of course, to ask him after time has passed reflecting and seeing whether those elements really were grief or whether they were really paranormal. I mean, like, since... uh, I haven't really mentioned it on the show, but since I lost my dog uh, a few months ago, I've had moments where I'd swear blind I could hear him barking. Um, But I sort of think that's my imagination playing tricks upon me but other people swear blind that it's not it's a visitation so i don't know i wonder what what he would say i think that's a really interesting point i I, you know i know i know arguably never recover from a big loss or a big grief but i think it would be really interesting to see how he reflects on how he felt at the time of writing that piece how he feels now he's further along or been through more of the grief process. I think that's a really good point. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know how to segue out of that in any smooth way, so I'm going to go a bit one show now. <laughs> joke about sausages? Yeah, not, not quite. If I could think of one, I'd use it. <laughs> um, uh, so but when it comes to paranormal topics, we like to think we've got a certain level of I don't know, expertise, would you say? Experience? Um, yeah, I would say, um, like, uh, I guess we spend a lot of time thinking about it and reading it. And researching. And researching it. So I could hold my own uh, in a debate, I guess. Well, I think, really, after my next section, we might think that we are just gifted amateurs at best. <laughs> And if we really want to be taken seriously in the paranormal field, we may maybe need to take a degree in the subject. 
Okay. I might put gifted amateur on my LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, they've got their business card. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound, sort of sound like um, I'm like a child being wheeled onto Blue Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some, somebody who can play the sailor's hornpipe in 13 <laughs> seconds, you know. You are quite good at that, though. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, uh, if we're going to get educated, I'd better see if there are any credible paranormal courses out there. Um. And I found quite a few academic possibilities for us. Let's start with the University of Edinburgh Coestler Parapsychology Unit, which does all sorts of interesting stuff. I love this. Their motto is promoting excellence in parapsychology research and education. It's good to have a motto. Yeah. I mean, maybe it could be a little bit more catchy, but I like it. Um, they conduct research and studies and teach a balanced approach to paranormal subjects. Um, I, it, it's worth if you go to the University of Edinburgh and either search Coestler Parapsychology or just Parapsychology, they've got a whole section of the website that's devoted to this unit and how it ties into degree courses and other kinds of courses and they do all paranormal studies and looks really really interesting made me think oh we should get in contact with them have a chat with them at some point yeah and they've been teaching courses for over 50 years as well so it's not just they're not just jumping on some kind of paranormal bandwagon or whatever they've been doing it for 50 years yeah now if we'd rather study in england than scotland uh we could look into a course at the university of exeter titled ghosts witches and demons the renaissance supernatural oh that sounds fun does it do, although it might be a bit highbrow for me and you ben well certainly for me i don't want to speak for you <laughs> um the the but it basically studies the supernatural in fictional written works so by shakespeare they study milton's paradise lost and other written works between 1580 and 1680 oh damn it no hannah barbera no so. hannah barbera no scooby-doo Damn. Might not be right for us, but, you know, if you're of more that uh, Shakespearean lean and you like the paranormal, that could be the course for you. Now, if we fancy studying in Scandinavia, Ben, and why wouldn't we? I do I do love a Nordic country. I don't know Me about too. you. Me too. Yes, yes. I love a roll mop. Yep. You can take a course in Satan in the History of Ideas at the Uppsala University in Sweden. Okay. What's that about? I'm not... I think it's how, again, I think it's how um, Satan is incorporated in both uh, fictional and folklore tales and the implications of why. Okay. Is my understanding. If you don't fancy that, we could study witchcraft and magic at the University of Oslo. Which would Hogwarts. be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be fun. It would be fun. Wishcraft and magic does sound like a lesson in Hogwarts. Though. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've got. I can make that so brilliant. Me and you walking along campus. Oh, double witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, now this one I found, which I thought might be good for James from the Lawmen. It would involve him travelling to America, but you know he would. I don't think he'd mind that. He could enrol in the University of Pennsylvania's course on folklore and folk life. Oh, very good, yes. 
Uh, and this one, which I thought sounded very interesting, and this is the one, to be honest, when I was looking at these courses, I thought, oh, I'd love to do this one. This is a course at the University of Arizona called The Paradox of Horror. What a great title for a course. Which takes a deep dive into horror films, why we find them both enjoyable and scary, and as well as the political and cultural function of horror. It examines issues such as censorship and regulation of the media industry, among other topics. Oh, that sounds fascinating. That'd be great, wouldn't it? It really would. It really would. I'd love to do that. Because you get to watch all those great horror films and then kind of analyse their relevance in cultural settings. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as Weirdly, as I told you last time, I, knew, I once knew uh, a doctor of horror movies. Um, oh, yeah, that's who, right. Doctor who, Horror. Doctor Horror, who became a blues, uh, blues singer. But that was his, his speciality. And uh, he had a sub-speciality, which he did his doctorate in, which it was vampire movies. Oh. Really? No, it's quite good, isn't it? He is the kind of person you want to get sat next to at a dinner party, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was absolutely fascinating talking about them. Yeah, but um, just the fact where you go, so you became a doctor of horror. What did you do after that? Well, I became a blues musician, and then after that, well, I specialised in vampire movies. It's like, oh, I you know. were my kind of dinner party. He's game. living life, isn't he? He really is. He really is. So I don't know, after running through those courses, I, I thought my closing would be, I feel slightly underqualified and unscientific to pontificate on paranormal topics. But actually, I got completely sidelined when I was researching that, going, oh, I want to do that course. I want to do that yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. I want to do that course. Like, what annoys me is nobody at my school ever pointed out that you could do this as a subject otherwise i would have gone and done that i wouldn't have gone and done artificial intelligence i would have definitely gone and done that although arguably probably artificial intelligence is more relatable in the modern world it is but you know how many times i've used it yeah that's not a one (laughs) and how many times have we talked about the paranormal so you've actually proved your case completely yeah 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 yeah. and um I've made some paranormal TV shows, but I've never made one about artificial intelligence. But I do think it's interesting that some of them are folklore and whatever, because you have to understand, like, yes, the the representation of those characters through the years, and it's almost like a literary yeah. thing, which is kind of fascinating. I like the sort of um, the Kieran O'Keefe camp of trying to prove what may or may not be possible in the actual paranormal world of of today. Yeah. And I think like the the space for podcasts and TV programs, maybe TV programs less so because of the nature of them, but um it's good that we can all talk about this now because in the past it was just a you know, it wasn't even a belief, it was just an interest. And I think that is where this comes out because science can't be about beliefs, it has to be about yeah. facts. And you have to have a hypothesis. And like I said at the beginning, what is your hypothesis? There's only, if you talk about, you know, my favourite topic of um, the werewolf that lives in the forest near Birmingham, Yeah. the only hypothesis, there's two, there's either it exists, uh, well, it's there's three actually, it exists, it's mistaken identity, or it doesn't exist. Yeah. And you can, you can, you could prove any one of those things through eyewitnesses, but to actually prove it, you'd have to go and stake it out. And then you get into subsections of, ah, yes, but it's a shapeshifter. It's been, 
it's invisible. Yeah. And and it's you an just alien. then it's an alien. You just go round and round and round in circles. But I think I think you're making an interesting point, and I think if there's any summary from this episode, that's it. That I, I've had this when I people ask me about the podcast or you know oh what do, what do you do what do you do in your spare time and as i do a paranormal podcast you, you do get a kind of slightly weird look oh you believe in all that stuff do you and i think what that kind of is what you're alluding to and i, I always find it difficult to explain i'm going well it's not necessarily about believing in something it's and I think what this episode has made me realise, whether researching or presenting it, is if I get asked that question, I'm not going to say, no, I I haven't got a belief in the paranormal. I have a curiosity. Mm, mm. That's, that, that's the truth, right? That's what I have, a curiosity. That's true. And I think anybody says they don't have a curiosity about it probably just hasn't thought about it enough. They probably don't go to the lengths that we go to. They probably don't subscribe to the 14 Times and... My my podcatcher is full of other people's uh, paranormal podcasts that I love listening to. But um, I think if you sat down with anybody and said, yeah, but are you sure? Are you sure? They'll have a story. They'll go, well, my Uncle Johnny did tell me once that he thought he saw something in a graveyard. You're like, well, there we go then. Do you not want to know what that was? Do you yeah, want to know how, how that happened? Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not curious about what that was. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a really good point. I, I think this debate about science versus the paranormal will continue. But I, I guess... No, it's done. I, yeah, it's done. <laughs> well, but, but I think in a way it's like, I guess what I'd love to see is it's not a case of either or that either side stop making assumptions and go, yeah. well, look, okay, like you said, ghosts are going to be pretty impossible to prove from a scientific perspective but let's not just shut down people's opinions and beliefs around it even if you disagree with them and you know like we said it's nuanced i certainly disagree with certain people's views of what ghosts are yeah as did you if we dig into things me and you disagree on topics all the time but you know it it's not combative it's we'll listen to what we've got to say right no no and it has to be a process of building ideas because there isn't going to be a one idea fits all i i do have a very strong suspicion that ghosts ufos cryptids they're all part of the same phenomena they have a common cause but i only suspect that i can't possibly begin to prove it nobody can but i think there's another reality that we're seeing glimpses of but to, to that's only because I've been speaking to people like you and other people and it's made me think and it's made me go in that direction. Yeah. Um, uh, 12 months ago, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, I, I really want to do go, yeah, we've all got to be nice to each other and accept other people's point of views or what just, but the, what just Ben just said, well, he's a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> point taken. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, hopefully uh, you got something out of that episode uh, as usual please like subscribe tell a friend do what you can to help support us we really appreciate it and we'll be back with more quantum mechanics ness next week yes like subscribe give us a review see you next week bye bye bye
Are you the quantum mechanics?